0: Smart Talk podcast, your shot of hope for the day, from Pastor Chris Smart of Hope Church Presbyterian in Tampa, Florida. We turn to uh, the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, from verse 14. In these uh, Advent Sundays, we were asking a very simple question, you know, why did Jesus Christ come? Scripture gives us several angles on that. And in verse 14, 15, you're getting another angle. And it's one that despite the, the variety of, of people in the congregation here today uh, and our background, what we're good at, what we're not good at, and some of us who were out at the competitions last night for the men's competition and the, the women's more sedate competition perhaps than, than the men's one, Uh, We we saw different uh, skills and standards. Uh, I've never seen so much wood chopped in my life as we saw last night. But it was all fun. We all discovered what we're good at, to some degree, or what we're bad at. Uh, And there's such a variety and a mix in people. Here's the thing. What we're looking at today is the one thing that we've all got in common. What's that? You're going to die, all right? Cheery thought, I know. But that's a fact. So we're looking at Christmas and death and the connection between the two. Because when you come to Jesus, you're actually looking at this incredible story of of one who was born to die. And that's what you got in verses 14 and 15. Why did Jesus come into this world? Because He wanted to destroy the power of death. But as we'll see, in order to do that, He had to die. In order to die, He had to be what? A human being. For God don't die. But in His humanity, Jesus did. And so, it's telling us there that He had to share in our humanity so that by His death, He might break the power of Him, Satan, who holds the power of death, freeing us from this slavery to the fear of death. So, let's look, first of all, that fear, fear of death that Christ wants to set you from. See, the freedom secondly, that He brings, and the faith that is called for in response to what He offers us today. In the ancient world, death was something that really traumatized people in a way that perhaps after so many hundreds of years of exposure to Christianity, we maybe don't appreciate the same in the West. Epicurus, one of the the philosophers in the times of the New Testament world where this letter was written into, said, it is possible to provide security against other ills, but as far as death is concerned, we men live in a city without walls. Graphic picture, isn't it? It means when the enemy comes against a city without walls, what does the enemy do? They get right in there, destroy it. All that we can do is come to terms with death in the hope of preventing it from preventing us from making the most of our life. So, when these words were first written, they really impacted people, because the whole culture was really strongly dominated by a fear of death. So much so that the writer here describes it as like a, a, people were in a, enslaved by this fear. And maybe you know people even today who are like that. Maybe you know people who say, oh, I don't, I'm not afraid of death. What's the point? We die and that's it. But God says to us in Scripture, not only is this something that people have been afraid of, still are afraid of, but people should be afraid of death. It's foolish not to be. It takes a lot of effort, I think, to convince yourself Not to be afraid of death. There's so many elements within it. There's the element of the sheer unknown. What do people really know about what happens after death? And as many billionaires today spend a lot of money trying to get into space, there are quite a number, a growing number of others who are trying to conquer death. Vast resources are going into it, tech investor Jan Talon co-founder of Skype, told CNBC that Silicon Valley's quest to live forever will eventually benefit humanity as a whole. He said, I think involuntary death is clearly morally bad, which makes the quest for longevity a morally noble thing to engage in. There's a huge and genuine attempt to increase longevity, so, we'd all start living up to 150 years old, 200 years old, maybe 500 years old, with the thought behind that of immortality. Is this somehow it's just a medical problem, and it could be conquered through a medical solution. We just go one step further and say, you don't want immortality in a fallen world like this. If you're going to fix the problem of our mortality. You want to fix the w- problem of a broken world at the same time, which is exactly the heartbeat of Christianity's hope. In fact, death in Scripture, if you go back to Genesis 3, is actually introduced in a way because of the, the fallenness of human nature, because there's something so wrong in us that it's, it's like a safety valve against human sin. Imagine for a moment a tyrant. Pick one from, from history, Joseph Stalin, Mao, or go further back to some cruel pharaoh, and, and imagine that they could live for thousands of years. be something like out of a, a, a Hollywood movie, and nobody could get rid of them. And if there was no mortality, even death wouldn't get rid of them. Can you see the capacity for human evil then? Can you see how unrestrained human sin would be and what tyrants like that would be in this world? And you don't have to go just to the bigger characters of human nature. Imagine if you boil that down to the domestic level of of your own home of a family or of a small community, and you had somebody who was just like a tyrant over her family or his family, and they never died. How evil would that be? How much could that possibly magnify suffering in this fallen world? So, death in a fallen world actually limits human suffering at one level, but it's clearly a temporary hold, a band-aid, nothing permanent because death, nonetheless, is still really our greatest source of pain when it steals those that we love the most away. And so, there's a temporary use for death, but it's nonetheless our last and great and final enemy that has to be defeated, which is why Christ came. So, we fear death for all of these reasons. It's unknownness We fear it too, I think, because deep down there's a sense of guilt in every human heart. The movie with Tom Hanks, Paul Newman, uh, The Road to Perdition, basically about like an Irish mafia family, there's a line between the two main characters played by Tom Hanks and and, and Newman, where the old kind of godfather of the clan, whose whole existence has been built on violence and murder and exploitation says to Tom Hanks' character, who works for him as one of his hitmen, he says, this is the life we chose, the life we lead, and there is only one guarantee, none of us will ever see heaven. They had that strange contradiction of, like, men of violence and mafia, but who clearly still believed in a spiritual world, heaven, hell, all of that. And they're caught in that tension. But they had made their choice. They would do whatever it would take to have power on this earth, even if that meant hell in the next world. And you see, deep down, I think we all have, Scripture says to us, we all have a a deep knowledge in our hearts that there is a God and that He cannot be very happy with how we have all lived our lives. Those lives that sometimes in a moment close to death, people say literally flash through their minds. People have said that to me so many times. who have come back from a near experience of dying. And it just reminds us that every action, every thought is, is there in your memory banks. The mind remembers everything just can't recall it all the time. And the mind remembers everything. God remembers everything. And that is terrifying, even at the same time as that is what gives you meaning to every action and every detail of your existence in this earth. So, there is another reason, therefore, for fearing death, because deep down we know something's far wrong with who and what we are. And then, of course, there's that other fear of death, of of leaving life, and particularly the fear of leaving loved ones behind. How will they cope without you? You might often fear. And part of the fearing is, is just thinking, well, there's so much more in life, that maybe I want to do. Do you have a, a bucket list of places you want to see, places you want to go, things that you want to do? Most people do. And if though you know you're dying, one of the fears of it, one of the horrors of it, you might be for you, ah, there's so much I wanted to do. And you're staring into the future and saying, but I can't nothing I can do. And that's part also of this experience of uh, the fear of, of death. But there's also a moral impact in our lives when we are slaves to this fear of death, as the writer describes it here. It's like, again, in, in moments in history, sometimes you'll see it at a moment in a movie, where basically somebody's got a gun held to their head, It's an individual, or it can be historically entire groups of people who are threatened with violence. And because of that threat, they will do things that are immoral, that are wrong, that contradict everything that they were brought up to believe was right and good, because they're afraid to die. Think about it. you're really afraid to die, what does that mean for what you might be capable of doing if somebody was to point a gun to your head? How many of the things that you say, oh, I would never do that, but in that moment you might be very tempted to do that. So, that fear of death has a, a huge impact upon human behavior as well. And if that fear of death is the greatest fear in your life, greater than your fear of God, then you're actually capable of really doing anything. And then the very heart of this fear of death is probably quite simple. It's the sense of its inescapability, isn't it? That we're 100% of us are going to deal with it. There's an old sort of parable told appointment in Samara should have been in modern sort of Iraq area. And I think that that the speaker is death personified. And it says to us, there was a merchant in Baghdad who sent a servant to market to buy provisions. And in a little while, the servant came back white and trembling and said, Master, just now when I was in the marketplace, I was jostled by a woman in the crowd, and when I turned, I saw it was death that jostled me. She looked at me and made a threatening gesture. Now, please lend me your horse, and I will ride away from the city and avoid my fate. So I will go to Samara, and their death will not find me. So, what did the merchant do? The merchant lent his servant his horse, and the servant mounted it, and he dug his spurs into its flanks, and as fast as the horse could gallop, he went off. Then the merchant went down to the marketplace himself, and he saw standing in the crowd that lady, that figure, and this is her speaking now, he saw me standing in the crowd, and he came to me and said, "'Why did you make a threatening gesture to my servant when you saw him this morning?' And she says, that was not a threatening gesture, I said. It was only a start, a surprise. I was astonished to see him in Baghdad, for I had an appointment with him tonight in (laughs) Samarra. You can't ride any horse fast enough or anywhere to escape this. Why are you here today? Because you should be afraid of death at one level. But Christ doesn't want you to be a slave to that. He has come to bring us a freedom, a freedom from the fear of death. When we think of Advent and the Old Testament church waiting for the Messiah to come, One of the clearest expressions of that waiting is in the book of Isaiah, chapter 9. And in one of those famous passages about wonderful counselor, everlasting prince of peace, you have the beginning of that chapter begins with these words, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness. Death, a light has dawned. That's why He came. um, In order to bring us that freedom, you had to do something. And when when you need somebody to come to your house to fix something, let's say it's that um, life support system in Florida, our AC unit, and uh, you you want a tradesman to turn up in the job who's got the right tools, the right equipment, if it was a a particularly difficult job and maybe a, a very hazardous, dirty job, they might even have protective clothing on for certain jobs. And you would want them to turn up equipped and able to to do that, dressed for it, equipped for it in every way. Well, why did Jesus come into the world? What does our, our verse say to us, verse 14 and 15 say? Because He too had to share in our humanity, especially in order to experience death. Muslims quite rightly get very upset at the idea that Christianity might teach that God can die. And they very rightly would point out and say, that's blasphemous. And they're right. It would be blasphemous if that's what we taught. We just teach something that could easily be misunderstood to teach that, because we say, Jesus is God, yeah? Jesus died, yeah? Therefore, God died. No. Jesus is flesh and blood, as well as God. There's two sides to His nature, united together in a perfect union, fully 100%, not 50% one and 50 another, but 100% God and 100% man, all at the same time. And He did that in order that, because He could not die in His divinity, God cannot die, but He could die physically in His humanity. He could be treated as if He had committed every indecency and sin in the entire world. And that's exactly what happened when He died on the cross. He had to share in our humanity. Not just to say, oh, look, I understand your pain, which He now can say to us at that level. But in order to actually deal with the roots of all of our pain, misery, suffering, and everything else like that, in the broken world, in order to destroy death but from the inside. And that's why this talks about Him being an atonement, verse 17, that He might make atonement for the sins of the people. The atonement meant a sacrifice that covers the sin. In the Old Testament would be an animal, but in the New Testament it's the fulfillment. It's Jesus as a man dying in our place for our sin. And that makes Jesus uniquely powerful over all the things that you fear in your life, both the fear of death, but the fear of, of giving in to sin and, uh, and, and of being helpless before the face of temptations, and the power of Satan, and the power of his darkness, and his power to tempt you. His ultimate power is death, but he has so many other tools at his disposal. But this is saying very clearly, here's a perfect high priest, a faithful one, merciful. And because of this humanity and his temptation as a human being, though he did not fall to that temptation, the very fact that he experienced its full force in a manner that we who have not withstood temptation to the end can never know, he has a power to take you through your temptations and your power. So, that's a derivative of this. If He deals with death, He can deal with something that's a lot less. Too many of us are saying, oh, this is just the way I am. This is my personality, that weakness, that character flaw, whatever. Sorry, but Christ wants to change us completely and He has the power to do so. Yes, it's going to take a lifetime. Yes, you're not going to be perfect on this planet, but the power to change you and me is immense, to set us free from this power of darkness and all that the devil might do. And so, it happens because He became one of us. There's that moment in the story that kind of associated with Christmas these days, you often watch the movie The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe around this time of the year. If you're not familiar with it, there's a, a Christ character in the story in a world where they're speaking animals. Who's the king of kings of the animals? The lion. So, the Christ figure is the lion, Aslan. But there's that terrible moment where the, the, the lion is put to death because… One of the humans in the story, Edmund, had sinned, betrayed his own people, served the white witch. So Aslan, as king, dies on the stone table under the power of the white witch. But that's not the end of the story, because the table cracks. Aslan rises again. There is a resurrection. Lewis, who wrote this, C.S. Lewis, putting all this Christian imagery into it. And you see in there that death was dealt with. Its power was broken in two steps, though. There was the fact that he had to die, and then the people were hearing a rumor. Aslan is back. No, you're joking. He can't be. We know he's dead. No, no, no. We've heard. But that hearing the rumor was very different from seeing the reality And there's a beautiful moment when some of them do see Him, and they get a big hug in His glorious lion mane. Now, hearing about it is one thing. Getting the hug is another thing. It's a whole different level of knowledge, isn't it? And so it is with Christ and His defeat of death. You've heard about the resurrection. You know the stories. You've got your Bibles. You've read it. You've had Sunday school. You've had church, all the rest of it. At some moment, you need the hug from the living Christ Himself. You've got to have a personal appropriation and experience of this truth. I can't just tell you it. You've got to taste it. Have you tasted it? That's what the victory is. It has to be in those two elements. So, Christmas is all about receiving the golden hug of the King of Kings and being lost in that embrace of love and victory. We need Aslan to step into our story and conquer death for us. And for Christ to do that, he had to have a body, human and divine, dying in his humanity, conquering, if you like, in his divinity. That's what he's done for us. That is the offer of freedom you have to embrace Christ personally. Have you done so yet? This isn't just a done deal for everybody. Oh, He did it, therefore we're all forgiven. No, He did it, but it must be personally appropriated. It's between you having a conversation with Jesus right now and saying, Christ Jesus, you did that for me? Then I owe you everything you have bought me. I am yours. I bow before you, King of kings. Have you done that? Are you following that out daily in your life? And so, there's this call now to have faith in Christ and all that He has done. Scripture says to us, therefore, brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus fix your mind upon Him, because that's who He is. This is why He came. This is His victory over death. Now, you might say, okay, I believe that, Chris, but I've got a question. I'm still scared of death. I'm a Christian. I'm believing in Jesus. I get all that. I know He's who He said He is, but, you know, I'm still scared. Paul talks about this, I think, a little bit in in 1 Corinthians 15, famous words that we often read at a time of uh, bereavement. O death, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is power, sin. The power of sin is the law. The law says, if you've broken me, you will pay the price, which is death. But thanks be to God, He has given us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Where is the sting of death, then, that you're so afraid of death still as a believer? Are you clinging to life sometimes, even though you're promised eternity, even though the fear of death should be totally gone from your life, but it's still there? Is there some level that this truth isn't functioning in your heart? Martin Luther said, those who fear death still lack faith in the resurrection since they love this life more than they love the life to come. That could be true. Maybe you don't understand how great heaven will be. Maybe it's too airy-fairy. It's not real enough to you. Maybe your hopes are too focused on this earth and you don't have the long perspective in mind. Or it could be that you still fear death because you just still believe that it has a sting in its tail. And the best picture that I, I've had of, of this victory of Jesus, that He has removed the sting of death, is like, imagining we were one of those crazy churches that you, um, you dance with the rattlesnakes, you know, I think you have to go up into Virginia or someplace like that. I don't know. But there are churches where you have rattlesnakes and all the rest of it as part of the service. Be very thankful we don't. If you were to say, well, here's a basket of, of snakes, put your hand into it, and you'll find something in the bottom. And if you find it, it's yours, whatever it might be, you know. How comfortable would you feel putting your hand into that basket of snakes? Not very comfortable. But what have they told you? Yeah, but it's okay. They've defanged every single one of them. The teeth are gone. The poison's gone. You can put your hand in there, and you'll be safe. I think that is the kind of uncomfortableness we can have about death, that Jesus has truly taken the sting out of death like a snake bit him, the venom's there, the teeth that are stuck in him. You still go through the experience of death one day soon. And when we go through that experience soon, you can have a genuine discomfort at the thought of how you might die. The process, will it be long? Will it be painful? All of these things, that's an understandable disquiet. But even there, even though it might be times when people linger for a long time in tremendous physical pain, the ultimate sting of death has been removed, and that has to be what we hold on to, because it means that the whole experience of death has now been transformed through Christ's death. He's able to take your personal experience of it and transform it from a fear into a doorway home. That the minute you die, what happens to you? Your spirit leaves your body. goes directly to God who made it. It's some experience of heaven or hell there and then. But there comes a day when Jesus will return to this earth and there'll be a general resurrection of the dead because sin's impact on this earth includes the fact that it has destroyed our physical bodies. And God is not going to leave his job half-baked, half-undone. He's going to reverse the complete effects of sin for his children. That means you're going to get your body back. The good news is it won't be quite the body that you've got right now. It'll be perfect and it will be sinless, it will be free from disability, from being able to be ill or anything like that, and you will be living on a renewed earth, a perfect earth for eternity. That's a glorious thought, fulfilling in every level of creativity, artistry, everything. And we do well to think more about that in our lives. You see, the victory over Satan is total. Even our bodies, even this earth, total. That's your future. (sighs) So, I'll ask the question again, why are you afraid of death? Why would you be afraid of that? What was your greatest enemy has now been turned into a doorway to the most glorious experience of truly living that a human being could ever know. Maybe in all this you have one last question in your mind. Okay, Chris, that's great for me, but hey, I've got a lot of family members who don't know Christ. That movie, Road to Perdition, the next quote in the line, when they talked about, for men like us, there is no heaven, the, the, the character turns around and he says to the old boss, he says, about his son, my son Michael, he could make it to heaven. And the old guy says, well, then do everything that you can to see that that happens. You see, it's one thing for us to have a personal assurance that we're going there. But the burden of that is you don't want those around you that you love the most to miss out on the glory and the wonder of heaven, and you certainly don't want them to experience the darkness and the horror of a lost eternity in hell. So, if you're like me and you have family members who do not follow Christ and do not know Christ, then your greatest burden is them. Maybe for some of you it's a husband or a wife, your grown-up children, whoever. What do you do? Well, it comes down to prayer and not presumptions. Pray for them and never stop praying for them and never presume either way that they are wholly lost, or that somehow they automatically get into heaven just because you can't cope with the idea of them being lost. It's understandable that we never want to think of a loved one being lost, but the reality of what Scripture says to us, what Jesus says, is the magnitude of our darkness and sin is so much greater than any of us actually sees that when God makes the call and if He says, that person's lost, No one on the planet will be able to challenge God about that call. It will be seen to be true. But here's the thing if you pray and pray, and I've been praying for 30 plus years for some of my family, and you never stop, keep praying. Live your life well, love them well, be bold enough to talk to them openly about Christ, and pray for them. That's what you're called to do. And do it with an expectation that Christ loves them even more than you love them, and you leave it there. So here's the greatest gift that we can receive any Christmas. This is the great end of it all. This is why Christ came, to destroy the power of death. Let me leave you in conclusion with one last quote from Narnia again. The, the four children who are at the heart of the story who lived as kings and queens in Narnia. They go back to this world, and turns out that they are on a, tri- a, a play. A train crashes; they die. Aslan, the lion, meets them, basically escorting them into the greatest adventure of all yet, heaven. And to quote that last book of the of the Narnia books, "The things that began to happen." It says, We're so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter 1 of that great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Amen? Do you believe this? doesn't sound like it. Do you believe this? Yeah. Amen. This is why Christ has come. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, may our hearts fall down in utter worship before You right now, that You have come to do this for us. It's not like we can point at ourselves and say, hey, love us because of this or that or any other reason except us because of X, Y, or Z. Lord, The very opposite is true, and yet you have done this for us. May the amazement and the wonder of that never be lost from our hearts, Lord Jesus. And Lord, we want to pray for one another right now. If there is anybody here who is really a slave still to the wrong master, enslaved to the fear of death, burdened with a deep unknown Lord Jesus, meet with them now. Let them be lost in your embrace. Let them marvel at the wounds that you still carry on your hands from that cross where you enter death, and then you tore it up from the inside to set us free. Lord Jesus, we worship You. We praise You. We pray for our loved ones that we long to see Your mercy and grace cascade into their hearts and souls and to bring them to the joy of knowing You. Lord, we pray today for one another's family members, our friends, whoever they may be, whoever's coming into our mind's eye right now. Lord, we pray for them. We're talking to You about them. We pray that You will find them. We pray that You will draw them. We pray that You will set them free in the fear of death. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy, we pray. Have mercy upon them for the lost are lost. Let them be found. We worship You now. We praise You now that You have come Born that you might die. But live again. Hallelujah. What a savior. Amen. You have been listening to Pastor Chris Smart at Smart, Group, sponsored by Hope Church Presbyterian in Tampa, Florida. If this message has encouraged you, please visit our website where you can leave a comment, a prayer request or find out more information about Smart Talk. Our website is hopefortampa.com, Smart Talk. That is H-O-P-E number four, tampa.com forward slash S-M-A-R-T-A-L-K. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share it with friends. And join us again next time.